You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. My name is Shelby Smith. My husband and I serve as gospel community leaders and on the Connections team. I will be reading Genesis 19, 23 through 29 today. Please open your Bibles with me. If you do not have one, there's one in the seat in front of you. Genesis 19, 23 through 29. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked... And behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overflow. And when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had had lived. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Shelby. Church family, good to see you here this morning. Glad you're with us. Uh, If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Shea Sumlin one of the pastors here at Northway. And as we uh, turn our attention here this morning to Genesis 19, I want to say something right up front, that when it comes to a church like ours that is committed to preaching the Bible, to not preaching topically, but actually taking each book of the Bible, book by book, going verse by verse, what it means is that as a preacher, you don't get the freedom to cherry pick. You don't get the freedom to pick the topics and the passages that you want to preach and just avoid the ones that you don't. It means that you're going to take the whole counsel of God because we believe that all scripture is breathed out by God and is useful for us. And uh, Genesis 19 is no exception when it comes to one of the topics and one of the chapters you would like to cherry pick uh, away from. Um, It is heavy. It is a painful chapter to read. Uh, In my opinion, outside of the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, this is one of the most difficult chapters to read in the entire Bible. Uh, If sermons had ratings, this one would probably be R, maybe NC-17. I'm going to do my best to keep it TV-14, maybe somewhere around there for us. Uh, But that in itself, I want you to know, that's the beauty of the Scripture It's not a fictional storybook. The scriptures aren't trying to whitewash the story of uh, humanity. The the scripture is presenting life in a sinful world as it is, warts and all. And yet it's filled with the hope of what can, is, and will one day be because of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so as we look at Genesis 19, one of the things we need to know Three of the most, there's several, but three of the most prominent themes that make up the Bible from cover to cover are the, sin, the, the themes of sin, judgment, and the relentless mercy of God that has been made available through Jesus Christ to come rescue us. All three of those themes are in concentrated form here in Genesis 19. This morning, I want to walk you through Uh, those themes faithfully as we can here in this text. When we left off last week, we learned that the cries of justice had come up to God concerning the wickedness that 
was found in the city of Sodom, and uh, of which Abraham's nephew, Lot, was living. And, uh, and so what happens is three men show up at Abraham's tent. Abraham is this man whom God has chosen to carry the line that will ultimately result in the Messiah who will come. It's through Abraham's line that all the nations of the earth will be blessed, including us in this room. And we're tracing God's faithfulness through that line. But now we find out that one of the cities of the earth is about to be destroyed. And three men show up to Abraham's tent to bring Abraham in on God's plans to bring about judgment and destruction. And we're told at least one of those men is, seems to be, it's called the Lord, seems to be a theophany. Um, the Lord himself showing up uh, as a man with uh, Abraham. And then there's two other men that are joining him that appear to be angels who've also taken the form of men here. And so they show up and they communicate these plans to Abraham and then the Lord departs. And now we see here in chapter 19, the two angels are going to head to Sodom to both bring about the rescue of Lot and execute the judgment of God. And so join me here. Uh, I'm gonna read the first three verses. We're gonna kind of work our way through this. Chapter 19. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And he said, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. And then you may rise up early and go your way. And they said, no, we're gonna spend the night in the town square, but Lot pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and they entered his house and he made them a feast and he baked unleavened bread and they ate. And so in keeping with ancient hospitality, this would be a custom form. Visitors are coming into the city. They confront Lot first. Lot offers in the spirit of his own uncle, Abraham, that we saw his hospitality Last chapter, he offers hospitality to these two angelic visitors. We don't believe Lot even knows that they're angels at this point, but he is offering them up hospitality. And here is where I want to begin drawing your attention to the theme of sin and specifically compromise. Now, you're going to see in this chapter some incredibly wicked sin from the men of the city of Sodom, but you're also meant to see here the incredibly wicked sin of the people of God, uncharacteristically as well. That's what we're meant to see here. I want you to notice where Lot is sitting in verse one. It's one of those details we'd probably just skip over, keep going. Notice where yet, he's in the gates of the city. In the ancient Near East, the gates weren't just big fancy entrances into the city, though they were. The gates where the, where the politics of the city happened. It's where the elders sat. It's where judgments were made. It's where the judges of the city, it's the place of the city council. That's what the gates of the city were in the ancient Near East. It's where the officials sat. And so at this point in the whole narrative of Abraham and Lot, you're, you're meant to see a progression with Lot. Chapter 13 lets us know that Sodom was an incredibly wicked city. Abraham knew it, Lot knew it, everyone knew it. And yet you're meant to see this progression with Lot. Chapter 13, verse 10 says, knowing that it's a wicked city, Lot 
lifted up his eyes and he chose the valley as the place where he would dwell. Then we see two verses later in chapter 13, verse 12, Lot moves his tent near Sodom. By the time we get to chapter 14, verse 12, we find out Lot is now living in Sodom and he's no longer dwelling in a tent. He's built a house. He's made this a permanent home when God told them they were going to be nomadic. And now by the time that we get to chapter 19, verse 1, 15 years later, where is Lot? He's not just living in city. He, he's an official of the city. Lot is not here as an embedded missionary, hoping to influence and evangelize a wicked city. He is here, even though he believes in God, he is here because he is in love with the world. He has been driven by the lust of his eyes and the lust of his flesh his entire life. That is why he's here. And you see the same progression in Lot's life that is described in Psalm 1. Remember Psalm 1? The blessed, the one who is blessed is the one who does not, who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, who does not stand in, this, in the uh, way of sinners, and who does not what? Sit in the seat of scoffers. And so Lot is here for altogether different purposes. His life is marked by continual compromise. He's going to be portrayed as the believer who just cannot let go of the world. And consequences are going to follow him. Now, verses 4 through 10, or 4 through 9 here, we're going to see a tragic collision of both Lot's sin of compromise and the wicked sin of the men of the city that come to bear here. Verse four, but before they lay down that night, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the very last man surrounded Lot's house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came with you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance and he shut the door after him. And he said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I've got two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they, that is the men of the city, they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow, talking about Lot here, this fellow, he came to sojourn and now he's become our judge. Now we will deal worse with you, their Lot, than with them. And then they pressed hard against the man Lot and they drew near to break the door down. And so we are told here that every single man that is in the city of Sodom came to Lot's house and their intent was to get a hold of these two men. Now they don't know their angels either. There's something about these angelic men that, that capture their attention. There's something about them characteristically that, that makes them drawn to them, but they're visitors. They're, they're here sojourning and these men of the city want to bring them out so they can, quote, know them, 
Now that phrase in Hebrew is one word to know. It's yada. Yada. Yada has a lot of different ways in which it can be used to know someone. But as we see in this particular text, it is used sexually. They want to know these men. They want to have a sexual encounter with these men. And what you're seeing here, because the weight of the city coming after them is militant homosexual rape. And we know this because the way that Sodom is described in the rest of the scriptures tells us this. Yes, we've already learned in Genesis chapter 13 that the sin of Sodom was exceedingly wicked. But specifically, notice how Jude uh, interprets this text. Jude chapter chapter 1 verse 7 says this, that essentially they indulged in an immorality and they pursued, quote, unnatural desire. That is what they pursued. Now, some want to go, liberal scholars who want to go, hey, this isn't homosexual sin. Um, What is unnatural about the desire here is that they wanted to sleep with angels. But I, I think there's two things that tell us that's not the case. One, there's no indication that they know these are angels. They think these are just men. And second, the judgment that comes that we see in Jude, Jude describes it as not only coming for Sodom, but the judgment's gonna come for Gomorrah and for all the surrounding cities who also engaged in the same practices. Now, those surrounding cities aren't showing up at the door here for angels. And so this is a specific judgment that's happening here, a specific sin that's happening here. Now, I want you to know the judgment that is about to come upon Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities is not just for the sin of homosexuality. So, so many hyper-Christian uh, camps want to make that that is the ultimate pinnacle sin. They are judged for the wickedness altogether. All sorts of sin that existed in these communities, homosexuality being one that manifests itself in this episode. But certainly what we do understand from Revelation chapter one declares that when one chooses willfully to go against God's created design of sexuality that exists between one man and one woman in the the context of covenant marriage, anytime we choose to willfully act against that, design is one of the evidences that occurs in both an individual and in a culture that has chosen to reject God. Because when you reject God, you begin rejecting God's design and you find ways to rationalize it otherwise. And what we find out about this culture, Isaiah chapter three tells us, Isaiah 3, 9 tells us that Sodom not only embraced this sin, they flaunted it, they paraded it. They chose not to hide it. Um, They proclaimed it. This is what's happening in Sodom. And I will tell you, 4,000 years later after this event, there is, it is no different in our day than it was then. We take what God has called sin and we choose to call it holy. We take what God has called holy and we choose to make it sin. And we throw parades in our culture for things that we should be lamenting and grieving over. Now, again, the overarching theme 
isn't just about homosexuality in this text. When you think Sodom and Gomorrah, oftentimes if you have any connection to church or this text, we tend to go, oh, that's the sin of homosexuality that's there. The real focus that's actually in this text isn't on the non-believer's acts of homosexuality. It's on the believer in God and his sin of compromise. It's Lot's sin that is meant to be emphasized here in this text. And we're told here that in order to preserve the lives of these two angelic men, which would have been in keeping with some form of hospitality, that even today in nomadic communities, um, when you go into the Middle East, uh, you'll see the practice of ancient hospitality of even your own enemy were to stay, you're obligated to host them for at least three days and be kind to them. But even with that in mind, Lot chooses to offer up his own daughters in exchange for these two men. Now, I'm going to be straight with you right here. Forget Shay Sumlin as a pastor right now, as a father of five daughters. I can't even comprehend this. I don't care what your view of hospitality is, to be this backwards this jacked up that you would offer up your own two daughters. Hey, militant gang rape men, just take my daughters, do to them what you please, just protect these guys. I don't have a category for that. Now there's lots of opinions out there. Again, this is just ancient hospitality or these men wouldn't have accepted them anyways because these girls we're gonna find out in a moment are actually betrothed or engaged so they wouldn't do that or they were desiring men, not women. And so that's why he did this. None of those satisfy. All I conclude from this is that when you as a father have spent 15 years immersed in the ideologies and the ethics of the culture around you, that somehow this becomes an acceptable option to treat your daughters as if they're subhuman and to defend those who actually need no defending and yet abdicate your defense of the vulnerable who you're commanded to defend. That is backwards living. That is compromise. Now, by God's grace, the angels intercede right here. In verses 10 through 22, we're going to see the angels not only intercede, but actually now bring about the unmerited rescue that they had come to bring about. But then, notice this, the men, that is the angels now in verse 10, they reached out their hands and they brought Lot into the house with them and they shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. You see just how depraved these men are. Even when blind, they are doing everything they can to get to these men. And then verse 12. Then the men, these angels, they said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-laws, sons, daughters, anyone else that you have in the city, bring them out of this place. For we are about to destroy this place because of the outcry that has come against the, the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and he said to his sons-in-laws, 
who were to marry his daughters. Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-laws as if he was joking, as if he was jesting. Now, as morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife. The angels grabbed Lot and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. And the Lord being merciful to him. I want you to underline that phrase. We're going to come back to that. The Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out of the city and they set him outside. And as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. One of the angels told them, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. You have shown great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills lest this disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city that's right here, it's near enough to flee to, and it's just a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. And he, that is an angel, said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city which you have spoken, Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. So what do we have in this portion here? These angels are seeking to rescue Lot, wicked Lot, but they're seeking to rescue him and his family from the coming judgment. One of the things that we're meant to see in this passage is that it was really hard to get Lot out of Sodom. Even though he believes in God, we'll talk about that in a moment. Even though he was an evangelist, even in a sense, pleading with his sons-in-laws, you got to get out of here. Judgment's coming. Even in the face of all of that, verse 16 tells us he lingered. He lingered. Even in the face of judgment, he just loved this present world so much. He was enslaved by what it could offer him. And you see, he has to be the first that is urged to leave. First, he's urged to leave. And then he has to be physically grabbed by the hand, by the angels to yank him out of here, to get him to get out of this city in order to to save him. And he is literally told then to head to the hills, flee. Remember, they're down in a valley right now. The angels tell him, get out of here. Not only get out of Sodom and Gomorrah and all the surrounding cities, get up to the hills and flee. Get out, get as far away from the city of sin and compromise as you can. And then in verse 18, he pleads with them, no, I don't wanna go all the way to the hills. There's this little bitty city. It's tiny, it's nothing. It's right on the outside of Sodom. Let me just stay here. And if I can just stay in this little city, then you're gonna, you, you protect me. I'll live, I'll be rescued, but I can also stay here in the city that they're gonna name Zoar. Why? Because he referred to the city as it's just little. Zoar in Hebrew means little. 
Now, we have a term for all that's going on here. It's called compromise. And y'all, it is just like us. I, I look at myself right here in this passage. Before we judge Lot too much, are we not the same in the face of the greatest rescue that has ever been given on earth, God sending Jesus Christ to redeem us from our sin, to yank us, literally grab us by the hand and get us out of sin country. Y'all with me on that? Remember sin country from our study in Romans brings us out of sin country so that we could be transferred into Graceland, so that we could be under a new king, not Elvis, but Jesus Christ, a new king, redeemed, restored, forgiven in the face of that greatest rescue, we choose to linger in our exodus. We try to bargain with God. We say, hey, well, I'm so thankful that you're saving me and pulling me from the judgment that's about to come on sin country. Rather than yanking me all the way over to a totally new place, can't I just stay in this little this little place right next to it. It's just a little sin. I just want to be able to overlook the life that I once had. I want to just be in proximity to the life that I was once living in. I don't want to go so far from it. I just want to be as close as I can. It's just a little piece of the old life. It's not major stuff, not major sin, just little compromises. It's our way of rationalizing and justifying a way for us to both hold on to God and the redemption we've received and hold on to the sin that we so love in the world. But God shows us that is not the life that he has redeemed us for. Sin brings judgment and his desire is to make us into a totally new creation. And the scriptures tell us, don't just see how close to sin you can get with resisting. The scriptures say, flee, flee. Leave the old life that you once knew. And so let not even a hint of immorality be named among you. Yes, be in the world, but don't be of the world. Flee from immorality. So nonetheless, through these angelic men, God provides a merciful rescue. Did Lot deserve the rescue that he was receiving? Not at all. It was not because of any merit of his own. It was, verse 16, the mercy of God that chose to rescue Lot. We're going to talk about that in a bit. But I want you to see verse 23. Just as God promised, judgment does come. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. So interesting text here. Just as God promised, judgment does indeed come upon the wicked, both in Sodom and Gomorrah and all the surrounding cities whose iniquity had come to completion, had come to fullness. What was once a lush valley, lush land intended for the stewarding of God's creation and God's dominion on earth, 
yet became a den for human depravity and rebellion. And the result is, is that God judged this city and rained down fire and sulfur. By the way, if you've ever visited the Dead Sea in Israel around where this took place, you'll find that not much has now changed in 4,000 years. Dry, arid, one of the dense, most dense salt concentrations in the entire earth, lowest point on the earth actually, and is mostly uninhabited. But maybe the most curious judgment we see here is the one of Lot's wife. You go, what in the world is going on here? They were explicitly told in verse 17, as you're fleeing, do not look back. Now at first, this seems harsh. Like, I don't know about you, I've got like Indiana Jones in my head right now. I've got the Raiders of the Lost Ark last scene. Don't open your eyes. Just keep your eyes closed. Because the moment you open, it's going to get you. Like, this is some sort of like Ananias and Sapphira deal where it almost feels like, is she just kind of running? It's a casual glance. Who doesn't want to see what's going on behind you as this happens? And she accidentally looks and then zap, she's a salt shaker all of a sudden right then. Is that what's going on? We need to understand there's more here than just a casual reading. What we're intended to see there is this is not an accidental look. This is Lot's wife longingly looking back, craving the life that she had, not wanting to leave that city of sin, not wanting to trust in the new city that lies ahead. The city behind her was a greater treasure to her than the city that was before her. And ultimately she experienced the very fate of the city that she most identified herself with. That is what's happening here. By the way, you know the shortest verse in the whole Bible. Y'all know what it is? Jesus wept, right? Shortest verse. Do you know the second shortest verse in the whole Bible? Luke 17, 32. Three words. Remember Lot's wife. Jesus was saying that in the context of the coming kingdom. He said, keep your eyes fixed on the heavenly city above, not the earthly cities below. Because the city where you find your citizenship is ultimately what's going to determine your inheritance. It's either going to be salvation from the one above or judgment on the one below. The original readers, the Israelites who had just come out of Egypt, who were about to go into the promised land, this would have meant something to them. This is God telling them, don't look back to Egypt. You've been redeemed. That is not your home. Your home is ahead of you, not behind you. Identify with what's coming, not what's behind. And Jesus was saying the same thing for you and I, remember Lot's wife. You have been redeemed for something much greater. Don't no longer identify yourself with the life that you once lived apart from God in the indulgences of your flesh. No, identify yourself with your redeemed life, your savior, Jesus Christ, and the newness of life that he has purchased for you in the city above. The fact is that we're meant to see here, sin is real and so is the judgment of God. As much as we don't like talking about judgment in our culture like this, the scripture tells us the wages of sin is death. God declared in Exodus 34, I by no means as a holy judge will let the guilty go unpunished. 
If God is the just judge that he declares himself to be, then he must hold a people accountable for their sin and rebellion. Now, again, please know, God is not judging the city of Sodom just alone for the sin of homosexuality. He is judging them for sin, period. The, the wickedness that is found in their hearts, just as it is found in your heart and my heart, just as it is found in Lot's heart as well. He will hold sinners accountable. He is a just judge. And when God judges, he doesn't judge based on conditional favoritism like humans do. He is not unfair in his judgments. He is perfect. He is holy. He is true. His judgments are in accordance with his character. He doesn't judge like you and I do. He judges perfectly. But he's not only the just judge who will punish sin, we're also meant to see here, he is also the God of salvation, not wishing any to perish. And it is only by his mercy that anyone is rescued, saving those who have not put their trust in themselves and in their own righteousness, but who have placed their trust in the righteousness that God has provided for us through Jesus Christ. And so, yes, he's the God of justice and he's the God of mercy. And I would just plead with you that he's got to be both. If you find that the God that you worship is only one of those two, then it is not the God of the Bible that you are worshiping. It is a God that you have made up for your own choosing. He must be a God of justice and he must be a God of salvation. How does he reconcile these two? Answer, through Jesus Christ. Now, right here in this context, Abraham is the mediator. He is a type of Christ. He's not Christ himself. Christ is the one who's gonna come through him. But Lot's rescue is going to be merited, not on Lot's own merit, but on the promise that God made with Abraham. It is going to be out of mercy alone. And so we need to understand just coming out of this section, we're not to mock the judgment of God like the sons-in-laws of Lot who think God's joking. No, God will bring about his judgment and that judgment is promised as Revelation 20 tells us it is. But we are to accept his righteous judgment. We are to turn to the Lord and we are to heed his mercy, which is exactly the picture that follows in verses 27 to 29. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like a smoke of a furnace. And so it was when God destroyed the cities of the valley, listen to this, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow which he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. So Abraham wakes up in the morning. He returns to the place that we saw in chapter 18 where he pled with God for the mercy of Sodom and he sees the smoke. And that is confirmation for him that the judgment of God was just and the, and the rescue of Lot was merciful as God had promised. By the way, did you catch that little phrase again? Verse 29, God remembered Abraham and he sent out Lot. In other words, he rescued Lot. Again, personally, one of the most challenging things for me in reading this text is answering the question, why was Lot rescued when he was such a dirtbag? and nobody else's. 
that's a challenge. It's a challenge for me. It's a, it's a hard question to answer. But I think the answer is that Lot was not rescued because of his own righteousness. He had none. He was rescued by sheer mercy. He wasn't spared because of his own faithfulness. He was spared because of the faithfulness of God to keep his promise to Abraham. That their ultimate trust is in God that would credit their righteousness, not their own works. Here's what's interesting. New Testament, 2 Peter. Peter, one of the apostles. 2 Peter chapter 2, 6 through 8 says this. Tells us a few things about Lot. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and by rescuing righteous Lot, by rescuing righteous Lot, who was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, quote, or parentheses, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Few things that that passage tells us. One, the destruction of the sinful is just and it's an example of all the ungodly. That if God were to judge any of us, he would be fair in doing so because we all deserve the punishment of our sin but he chose to rescue Lot as an example of his mercy. So we see these two things here in the salvation and the judgment of God. But what we learn about Lot is that we find out here, Peter calls him righteous. And he tells us a couple of things. One, that he actually was a believer in Yahweh and the promise that was made to Abraham. He is therefore considered as righteous just as Abraham was. Even though he's not, he's declared that by God. And as such, Peter says, essentially, you're going to see him in heaven. So we're going to get a lot of time to spend with God and Lot to talk about this in heaven. Second, is we're told that the whole time that he's living in Sodom, he's actually tormented. He's actually distressed within, as self-inflicting as it may be, he's tormented. This is interesting learning about Lot here. But it was because of the promise that God had made in chapter 12 that God would not have him perish, but rescue to everlasting life. And I would say, so it is with you and I. We are not saved because of our own works, our own righteousness. If God were to destroy us today, judge us today, he would be just in doing so. The, que- the Bible never asked the question, how can a loving God send a good person to hell? That's something that humans have made up. The question that the Bible asks is how could a holy God allow a sinful person into his presence? That's the question the Bible asks. All of us are sinful. We all deserve the judgment of God. It is only by his sovereign mercy extended through Jesus Christ, you putting your trust in Jesus Christ and receiving his righteousness into your account that we are saved. We are the lots who have been rescued undeserving as we may be. He has rescued us by sending his son, Jesus Christ. Now, I'll be honest. I wish we could just end right here and just end on that note. Lot the sinner was rescued. You and I are sinners. We've been rescued. Let's go have lunch. Uh, I wish we could just end right here. But there's a last section of this text that we need to close with. And we see the unfortunate generational consequences of a compromised life. You see this, look at verse 30. Now, when Lot went up out of Zoar, he lived in the hills. What? With his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. 
So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. Isn't that interesting? He who just had to live as close to sin as he could while the angels are pleading, go to the hills, now realizes the angels are right. Somewhere along the way, he went, you know what? I don't think I want to live here anymore. I think this is a bad idea. I'm going where the angels told me to go. Verse 31. And the firstborn daughter said to the younger, our father is old and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. So come, let us make our father drink wine and we will lie with him and we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger daughter, her sister, behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him and we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab, and he is the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Once again, not Pastor Shea, Father Shea. I don't have words for this text. I think the question we have to ask is what would have these two daughters feel like they have to be put in this position? One is obvious and one is tragic. One is an obvious. They believed having only grown up in Sodom and seeing everything they ever knew destroyed, now living in a cave where nobody else is around, they assume there's no one left on earth. And they're so committed, as all those in the ancient Near East were, of, um, of being primogenitors to a next generation, of procreating, that the only way this was going to happen to continue their father's line on earth was to sleep with their dad. Misinformed as it may be, that is what they felt. But I think the greater tragedy is one of unintended collateral damages that we see here of abdicated parenting. For 15 years, Lot had chosen to raise his daughters in Sodom. And then such a backwards place, sexuality, there was no, just like the culture we're living in today, there's no right side up and it's, everything's upside down. What is right in the eyes of man? Where are the natural boundaries sexually? Where are the natural boundaries in a family? Everything was backwards in Sodom. And then you've got a hypocritical dad who loves God, but loves the world. So where else are you gonna expect them to learn how, what it means to trust God and follow God's design? for human flourishing. And so they carry out what they believe is the only option they had. And as a result, we have a horrific legacy that is now going to be established through Lot's line that would have immediate implications on the readers of this text, 
the original readers of the text, the Israelites. Note the two sons who are born. Moab, who's by the way, that name means from my father. And Ben-Ami, which means son of my people. One is the Moabites, one are the Ammonites. These are the people that will come from these two sons. What would this have meant to the original readers? First of all, there's some crazy immediate parallels here. Consider the story of Noah and Lot. Are these not the same story? With Noah, it was said that in his day, there was only evil all the time. In Lot's day here, we're told that all men, every last one of them in the city was wicked. In Noah's day, we see a judgment upon sin from raining water. In Lot's day, we see a judgment upon sin from raining fire. In Noah's day, we see one family is rescued out of the judgment. In Lot's day, one family is rescued out of the judgment. In Noah's day, immediately after they're rescued, we have sexual inappropriateness between a father and his children. And immediately after Lot is rescued, we see sexual inappropriateness between a father and his children. As the original readers who are reading this, the Israelites, where had they just come from? They have just been rescued from Egypt. Judgment came upon the sinfulness of Egypt through plagues. One family, the family line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are all rescued out of this place. They are now currently standing on the banks of the Jordan River when they are reading this text that we have just read. And there's only one thing that is preventing them from crossing over the Jordan right now. Do you know what it is? The Moabites and the Ammonites are the two enemies of God who are seeking to stop God's promise from being fulfilled. Now, what is the temptation for God's people in that moment? The temptation for them was to look back, would be to compromise, to not trust the promises of God. And so instead, God is beckoning them through this story to learn from the past. And the scriptures tells us the same thing. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10 concerning another account uh, in the Old Testament. And he said, these things were to take place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. There is a lesson for us to learn as well. Those same three themes are for us as well. One, sin is destructive, church. Sin will make you go further than you want to go, make you stay longer than you want to stay and cost you more than you want to pay. Sin is destructive. Second, judgment is real. There are consequences for sin. God is holy and he will judge sin and we are not to mock him in his judgment, but we are to believe him and as such, repent. But thirdly, in doing so, knowing that there is a rescuing mercy that is available for you and I in the midst of that judgment. You wanna know one last beautiful picture that we see coming out of the story? Let me just tell you how cool God is. So that we have the wicked Moabites here, the, the illegitimate offspring of Lot and his daughter. Do you know that about six, 700 years later, there's gonna be another Moabite who's gonna show up on the scene? A woman, a woman by the name of Ruth. 
And Ruth is going to marry a Jewish husband who will be a kinsman redeemer for her. And he will bring this Moabite as his wife and they will have a child. And that child will then continue the line of Abraham that will bring about our Messiah, Jesus Christ. The very one whom God promised Abraham to rescue us from our sin. God uses Ruth, a Moabitess, as not only undoing Lot's daughter's story, but also undoing our story as well. If God can redeem a Moabite, illegitimate enemy of God, then he can certainly redeem you and I. Can I just encourage this church? Let's not play with sin. Let's not engage with compromise. Let's not look for the Zoars in our life to see how close that we can get to the old life we once lived that we were redeemed out of. Let us, as with Lot, willingly though, unlike Lot, willingly grab the Lord's hand. Let him lead us as he has promised to that promised land that he has chosen for us. And let us never look back. Let us live lives sanctified and holy, set apart for him, for his rescuing mercy is great. I don't care how far you've run. I don't care what sins you've committed. You are never beyond God's reach for redemption. He has sent his son, Jesus Christ, for you. Put your trust in him and be rescued. You don't deserve it any more than Lot deserved it, but he's offered it to you. So step into it. And church, let's look ahead towards the heavenly city of Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem that's coming. Let's keep our eyes gazed there and not on the old life, right? And let us go into the city and let us declare and plead with everyone who will listen that there's a savior for them as well. And his name is Jesus Christ, amen? Let's pray. Father, how much do we need to heed this story? This story is not about just the wicked sins of the Sodomites. It is about the sins of us, those who look more like Lot on any given day. None of us deserve your rescue, but that's the point of the gospel. It is your mercy, it is your grace that has come for sinners like us. May we not harden our hearts and may we not live towards compromise, but oh God, may we keep our eyes fixed straight ahead, gazing on that Eastern sky while all the while fulfilling the work that you've called us to do until Jesus returns and brings us into the promised land once and for all. Pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our rescuing savior, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.